0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated in the merit of the speedy recovery of Batya Bat Rachel. May she regain her strength. May she defeat her illness with no lingering effects. It's Tuesday. It's Parsha's Shovtim, And with the help of the Almighty, we have the white smoke. We have a Parsha podcast. And not just any Parsha podcast. It's a special one. It's a special one with a special treat at the end as the exquisite insight. So even if you are one of the people, one of the few people that like to skip the exquisite insight, stick around for the special treat at the end of the podcast. I'm going to do something that I've never done before in no previous Parsha podcast podcast or dare I say, any other podcast, as you may know. And if you don't, I've been derelict in my duty. The Parsha Podcast is not the only podcast that we record here from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. I am the proud and fortunate host of six different shows. Of course, the Parsha Podcast is what you are listening to. But then there's Torah 101. And we're doing some really interesting things there on the Torah 101 channel and those of y'all that are listeners, you know what I'm talking about. There is the Jewish History Podcast that has been a bit neglected for a while, but please God, not for long. The Ethics Podcast, the Mitzvah Podcast, This Jewish Life, but this is the Parsha Podcast. And what we're going to do at the end of the Parsha Podcast it was not done, not on a previous Parsha Podcast and not really on any one of the other shows. You don't want to miss it. But now our focus is Parsha Shoftim. And it is a very interesting Parsha. It talks about all kinds of interesting things. But at first glance, there is almost nothing that is pertinent to us regular folks. Certainly not. Today, we don't have prophets. We don't have a desire for idolatry. We don't have kings. We don't have a temple. We don't have a Sanhedrin. There's a lot in our Parsha, that's not relevant to us. It starts off with judges to establish courts in the cities, in the tribes, and how the judges must operate. you got to pursue justice, not take any bribes. And then it talks about the temple grounds. It cannot have any trees. It cannot have any monuments. That's the way of the idolaters and the idolatrous temples. The sacrifices cannot be brought from blemished animals. What to do with an idolater, we're told. It's a capital offense. How to resolve judicial uncertainty, the role and the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, and the imperative to adhere to their rulings. And then we talk about kings, assigning a king and the limitations of a king. Can I have too many wives, too many horses, too much money? Must have two Torah scrolls. One, that he keeps in his palace. One, to travel with him wherever he goes, to always remember that he is subject to God. We may be the king's subject, but he is God's subject. What the Levite gets, we're told. What the Levite does not get, what the Cohen gets, the laws of divination, necromancy, and seances, and fortune-telling and clairvoyant gurus and sorcerers. And we read about the imperative to be wholesome with God. Don't seek out those gurus. Don't try to find a spiritual shortcut that is laden with peril and tinged with the stench of idolatry. And we're told about the prophets that will follow Moshe and how to vet prophets how to determine if someone is a legitimate prophet, and of course we read about the requirement to listen, to hearken to the prophet. We read once again, for the third time, about the cities of refuge, when someone murders accidentally. This is not a willful murder, that is a capital offense, but an accidental murder, that person is punished by having to go into the city of refuge, And we read about the three additional cities that are added in messianic times. And we read more and more mitzvahs that are not relevant to us. And then finally, there is one mitzvah that is relevant to us, or at least we can conceive of it being practical. And that's not to encroach on someone else's property. Don't go in the the night stealthily to move the border markers separating your property and your neighbor's. And then there's a law of the false witnesses who are punished with the precise punishment that they wanted to inflict upon the defendant. And then we have the very bizarre conscription for war. When we have a war against our enemies, the Kohain who is anointed for war, makes an announcement whoever built a house but hasn't moved in yet, whoever has planted a vineyard but hasn't inaugurated it, Whoever has betrothed a woman but hasn't married her or whoever is fearful can go home. Everyone else may stay and fight. And then we read about the war conduct. You have to offer peace overtures before launching an attack. If they refuse the peace offer, then and only then can we launch an attack. But in war, we cannot destroy fruit bearing trees to make siege works. And the final law of the parsha, the discovery of a corpse outside a city, we don't know how this person died. The nearest city must make an elaborate ceremony to quite literally wash their hands of the guilt of not tending to this poor chap. How did this poor chap die? We are the city that was closest to where he was killed. We try to absolve ourselves of responsibility for this crime. They take a calf and they kill it in front of the whole townspeople. And this is an effort to try and press upon the people the severity of the crime, but also to solicit any information that may lead to the capture of the murderer. So all kinds of interesting subjects are treated in our Parsha, but the absolute overwhelming majority of the content of our Parsha is actually not relevant to us. These are things that were pertinent in the times of the temple, when we had kings, when we had a Torah army, when we had prophets, when we had Sanhedrin, when there was idolatry. It's not really relevant to us today. Can there be any lessons? Can there be any insights for us today? Let's see what we find. I want to explore a very interesting if peculiar part of our Parsha. When there's a war and we need soldiers, there is a selection process. Which of the soldiers are going to be conscripted and which are going to go home? This is not done via a lottery. It's done via the process described in our Parsha chapter 20. When there's a war against your enemies and you see a horse, and a chariot. And you see the masses of the enemies. Don't be scared, we read in verse 1. For Hashem, your God, is with you. He took you out of Egypt. Look at the miracles that happened to you in the past. Don't worry about this enemy that's facing you. But before you join the battle, when you get close to the actual war, then the Kohen gets up and speaks to the nation. He addresses the troops. And he tells them, Shema Israel! listen, O Israel. Today we're going to war on our enemies. Don't lose your resolve. Don't be scared. Don't panic. Don't have any dread from your enemies. Because after all, it's Hashem, your God, who is with you. He's going to wage war against these enemies. He's going to save us. Don't worry. We have a battlefield. We see our fierce enemies. They're armed to the teeth. There's horses. There's chariots. There's hardened warriors. And what are we? We're Jews. What do we know about war? And they're much more numerous than us. So we have this Kohane. He's the designated, anointed Kohen of war. And he gives the pregame speech, the pep talk, to the troops. Don't be scared. Don't be fearful. Don't get down. Don't lose your resolve. God is on your side. And then, while in sight of the enemy... We have the selection process. Did you build a house? Did you plant a vineyard? Did you betroth a woman? And did you do any of these things and not consummate it? Not live in the house, not enjoy the fruits of your vineyard, not marry your fiance? Well, you are free to go. Go home. Unshackle yourself from your provisions take off your gear, drop down your weapons, you're free to go. Oh, are you fearful? Are you scared? Are you worried? You could leave as well. You would imagine this would produce a whole string of battlefield desertions. We have our army assembled, and now we are releasing our warriors in full sight of the enemy. And here's the question that I want to pose. Question number one. Why not do the selection process while still in camp? You assemble the army and you actually see the enemy and you see the horses and you see the chariots and you see the warriors and now you decide who goes home? We could have very easily winnowed the ranks while home find out who is eligible for an exemption and they don't even need to suit up for war why wait until the enemy is at the door the barbarians are at the gate why do we settle on who's going to be part of our army only then now this is not the most difficult question in the world i think if you read the rashi commentary if you read the talmud the answer could be very obvious. One of the people that is exempted from war, someone who's scared. You could be brave and macho and camp. Yeah, I'm going to take my spear and my my bow and arrow and my rifle, my musket. I'll take on the enemy. And then when you actually see the enemy, that's when you get the dread and the terror. And the Talmud actually says. That the ones who leave because of the house, the vineyard, the betrothal, really, they're leaving to provide cover for those who are leaving because they are scared. And Thomas Lee says, the people who are leaving because they are scared, it's not because they're scared of war, but because they recognize that this is really a conflict, a war that is operated by God. But God will make miracles only for those who are righteous. And the people who are scared of all the sins that they have in their hands, those are the ones that go home. And we don't want to embarrass people who are going to walk away and say, I have all these sins in my hand. So we provide cover and say, okay, if you built a house, planted a vineyard, betrothed a woman, you can leave as well. And that provides cover for those who are leaving due to the sins in their hands. So you could give an argument and say, well, there's a need to first see the enemy, let's see who's scared, let them leave, let everyone else leave, and only then go to war. So it's not the most difficult question in the world, but I think it's still noteworthy that the Torah insists that the final conscription is done while in sight of the enemy. But more broadly, that's another question one want to pose. Let's frame it like this. I think there's a major problem with the selection process. If you think about it, this war, it's a mitzvah. You're going to wage war against your enemies. You're going to purge those who threaten us. You're going to bring peace and stability to the land. This is a mitzvah. And if you think about it, it's not just any ordinary mitzvah. This is something which is so critical that you actually need to endanger your life to do. The unsettling thing about it is that people die in war. Yet we send soldiers to the front. When you choose to send a soldier to the front, you are in effect saying that the aims, the objectives of this war are so critical that they warrant risking lives to achieve. So if there's a mitzvah that is so important, you have to actually be willing to endanger your life, that must be a very important mitzvah. We know that most mitzvahs, you're not required to endanger your life to fulfill. We know, for example, if your life is at risk, almost all of the Torah laws are suspended. So for example, driving on Shabbos. I will confess that I did it twice, not as a driver, as a passenger. Once in 2009, when my son Yehoshua was born on Shabbos, and once in 2019, when my daughter Rivka was also born on Shabbos. Both times, incidentally, it was in an internal combustion engine car. And by all accounts, that is a real violation of Torah, a violation of Shabbos, because there's actual fire in the cylinders. And of course, fire on Shabbos is the one category of work that is explicitly mentioned in the Torah. So there's a real violation of Shabbos. How do you do it? What allows you to disregard the word of God. Well, to save a life or to facilitate a life, it is permitted. In fact, it's actually mandatory. Someone who hesitates, the Talmud tells us, someone who hesitates, well, is the person's life really in danger? Maybe we should wait till after Shabbos. Someone like that. The Talmud says they are a pious fool. You think you're pious. You think of being really righteous but you're a fool. Why? Because when it comes to a life-threatening situation, we ignore the Torah. We eat only kosher. Someone puts a gun to your head, a bit, It says, eat the non-kosher. Eat on Yom Kippur. You eat, and you save your life. There are very few mitzvahs that demand martyrdom. We know the Talmud tells us that there are three Cardinal sins. There are three cardinal laws that even if our life is at stake, we must not violate. Idolatry. Someone puts a gun to your hand and says, okay, bow down to the idol. You say, shoot me. Commit murder. Shoot me. Commit adultery. Shoot me. Bite the bullet. But besides for that, under most circumstances, we indeed violate the law to save a life. In the words of the Talmud, based upon a verse in Leviticus chapter 18, Torah and mitzvahs were given to us to live. If the only way that we can observe a given mitzvah is by dying, then in that circumstance, that mitzvah was not given. So there are three cardinal laws that we have to even endanger our life. We have to be willing to lose our life to fulfill. But now, perhaps we can add a fourth mitzvah. There's a fourth mitzvah that you have to be willing to die for. The three cardinal laws plus war. The mitzvah of going to war must obviously be so important because by definition, if you're doing it, you are willing to die for it. It must be a very important mitzvah indeed. Yet, when we examine the soldier selection process, we find something very strange. Who is exempt? Well, if you you built a house recently, if you planted a vineyard recently, if you got betrothed recently, if you're scared. Can you imagine Selling that to the Vietnam draft board? I planted a vineyard. How is that an excuse to get exempted from something so important? This sounds like, like jury duty. Is there any reason in the entire world that you won't be able to execute your duties? That's what it sounds like over here. Yet we see that it's a midst of it's so important, such Supreme importance is associated with this mitzvah because obviously you even have to die for it. So here's the question. How can it be that going to war is simultaneously so critical, so important, so vital, so necessary that you even need to potentially forfeit your life for it, yet it has an exemption criteria so porous that anyone who wants to avoid it can get out of it? Is it so important, so indispensable, so necessary that we must be willing to die for it? Or is it jury duty? Is it something which is so trivial? Of course, I know civic responsibility. But still, is it so trivial that anyone who wants can be exempted, can get off? So I want to suggest an approach. Kind of think of it as a homiletic take on the whole subject. There's a war here. In a war, it's quite likely, people are going to die. Who wants to sign up for such a mission? Who wants to endanger their life to be part of this? Why would anyone sign up for any mission that carries with it the risk of losing their life? Could you think of anything that would be worthy of that? Why would there be anyone who stays behind? Why would there be anyone who wants to partake in this? Imagine it's jury duty, but there's a chance that Some members of the jury are going to get shot. In that case, everyone would agree that civic responsibilities don't matter. It's not something which is so important that you should be willing to forfeit your life for. Everyone would come up with an excuse. Why would anyone want to go to war? Why would anyone be willing to forfeit their lives for this? So I think the idea being conveyed here, it's a very powerful one. If you knew what are the tasks that God created you to accomplish are, if you knew what the purpose of your life is, why are you here? If you knew your life mission, if you knew the reason why you were created, then by definition, that task, that mission would be the objective of your life. And by definition, it would be the hill that you are willing to die on. The great Rabbi Noah Weinberg used to say, if you don't know what you're willing to die for, then you don't know what you're living for. What are you living for? such a basic question, but it's so powerful. What are you living for? What is the goal of your life? Once you know the answer to that question, then you know what war you're willing to go and endanger your life to try to accomplish. Once you discover the answer to the question of what are you living for? By definition, you know what it is that you're willing to die for. Now, this is true not just in the religious context, not just, you know, what mitzvah are you willing to die for. It is true the world over. It's ubiquitous. The parents are willing to die for their children. And the mechanics of that, why would someone make that decision? Something really deep if subconscious going on over here. When a parent is willing to die for their children, it's because they have a realization, again, it might be subconscious, but there is a realization at play here that the reason why they are living is for their children. If this is your life mission, by definition, it is something you're willing to sacrifice your life for. Patriotism. People love their country. Why does that exist? Just so because you were born in this geography, you could have been born you know a few hundred miles in the other direction, and you would be fine for the other country. doesn't make any sense, right? Well, patriotism is a form of indoctrination where children, but really citizens, are imbued with love of their country, in order to elevate the value of that country, in order to make them willing to die for that country. To make the value of this nation so important, it's part of your life mission. But truthfully, we have evangelists of all types. We have people willing to forfeit everything for all causes. You have any revolutionist. Is that the right word? I think it's revolutionary. Any Revolutionary. Is it revolutionist or revolutionary? I don't know. I think it's a revolutionary. Any revolutionary of any stripe is someone that has taken upon the mission of this revolution as their life mission. It could be a freedom fighter, it could be a Zionist, it could be a communist, it could even be a climate activist. But you see people take upon themselves a certain life mission and be willing to die in order to advance their life mission. And the structure of all this self-sacrifice is the same. It's a deeply held belief that this is the mission that I'm living for. And if the way to accomplish that or to advance that is via my death or via risking my death, Because this is the purpose of my life, it's worth it. But how do you find your life mission? How do you discover what it is that you are willing to die for? You can't just make everything a cause that you're willing to forfeit all for. You have one life. What's your one mission? Maybe there are a few things that could be your mission. But it can't be everything. What is the life mission that you're willing to sacrifice everything for? How do you choose which hill, maybe a couple of hills, which hills you're willing to die for? So I think that it falls into two categories. This is something we talk about a lot here at the Parsha Podcast from Torch Center in Houston, Texas. In all of our spiritual life, there is always the general and the specific. There are general rules and laws that apply universally. And then there's the individual, the personal. There are 613 mitzvot that are universal, applied to every Jew, and there's no room for individuality, no room for carve-outs. It's rigid and inflexible. And then there's the the individual, the personal. Rav Hirsch used to say that our tell us that tzitzis, tzitzis, are emblematic of all of Torah. Our tell us that the mitzvah of tzitzis is equal to the rest of the mitzvahs combined. And part of that is symbolized by the structure, by the, the layout of tzitzis. If you look at a tzitzis strand. You have four of them on the corner of, on all four corners of your tzitzis garment. So what does it look like? There are knots and then you have the rings separating the knots, so five knots and then it's tightly wound rings. and then after the fifth knot, you have the rest of the strings just dangling loosely. So, The tzitzis—it's partially knots that are tightly wound, that are taut, and then you have the hanging, dangling strings. So, R'furs used to say that part of our responsibilities are are rigid, are tied, are inflexible, and that corresponds to the six hundred and thirty mitzvos that are binding for every Jew. And there's no room for individuality. But then there's the flexible part. Then there are those strings that are dangling. There is a part of our religious and spiritual life where we get to express ourselves individually. There is room by the part that dangles, by the part that is free. There's room for individual latitude, flexibility, creativity. That's the area where you kind of define yourself and you made those choices. It seems to me that with respect to a life mission, the hill to die on, it's the same. The Talmud tells us there are three sins that we can never transgress, even if it means that we're going to lose our lives. You have to love Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources, with all your soul, even if it means forfeiting Your soul. Murder, adultery, these are sins that are so severe that we must die to not transgress. And that's part of the 613, so to speak, life mission. It's universal. It applies to everyone. This is the universal hill to die on. Perhaps we can suggest. In the episode of Selecting Soldiers for War, we are shown how to discover the individual he to die on, the personal he to die on? What am I specifically living for? What am I specifically willing to die for? What mission is so important to me that it is worthy to dedicate my entire life for? And this is not determined ahead of time. This is something for every individual to choose. The soldier selection process is deliberately porous. And anyone who wants to get off can get off because you must choose that life mission. It cannot be forced upon you. You have to choose. This is something that I want to dedicate my life to on an individual level. Again, some things are universal, but everyone must choose their individual mission as well. What cause are you so committed to that you assign it towering importance above all else? If someone does not want to go to war for this cause, they'll let go. I think also the fact that the selection process is not done at home is perhaps important or illustrative for our purposes. It's done in full sight of the enemy. When you see the cause, the mission is present. That's when you have the ability to evaluate it, to see, is this something that you want to choose as a life mission? Perhaps the inference here is, you have to experiment. Experiment with a cause to see what mission it is that you connect with and you're willing to dedicate your life towards. You have to get your feet wet, sample some stuff, try it. Take it for a test drive, for a spin around the block. See if this mission is for you. When you're in the battlefield, You have your blood pulsating through you. You have a taste of what this mission entails. Now you can make an informed choice to see if this speaks to you. And there's a coin. And the coin is a special coin anointed for war. This is the mentor. The mentor can provide you guidance, can inspire you, can tell you not to fear the mission can give you words of encouragement, but ultimately will also provide you the avenue to leave, to depart, if you so choose. Ultimately, it's your choice of what it is that you are living for and you are willing to die for. What you are dedicating your life to, again, that's not already prescribed in the Torah, what is that individual hill to die on, that is your choice. And when you're there, you're in the war. If there are other things that now occupy your mind, if you're thinking about your vineyard, your house, even your family, that's a sign that this particular life mission is not for you. When someone is immersed in their life mission, it becomes all consuming. It crowds out other priorities. It assumes supreme importance. I think there's a very important subject and perhaps a helpful exercise. Think about what it is that you are willing to die for. Once you know the answer to that, you know, What your life mission is. If you cannot come up with something, then perhaps it can be said that your life is a bit directionless. And that's a scary thing. It's a scary thing to come here and not to know what you're doing here. And of course, generally speaking, the Torah tells us what we're doing here. But we're not clones. We're individuals. What is your individual mission? That's a very important question. If you don't know the answer, it's kind of terrifying, but if you do know the answer, you do know what you are willing to die for, your life has direction. And those causes become front and center. When you know what you're living for, that knowledge provides penetrating clarity. You know what life's about for you. The opacity, the confusion, the uncertainty that dominates human life doesn't apply to someone who knows what are the hills that they are defending. The Talmud tells us that words of Torah do not endure Only within someone who dies over them. This is the Talmud at the end of the Book of Brachos, page 63b. Within whom does Torah flourish? Someone who dies over it. You have two people who study the same amount. One is willing to die over it. By definition, that's their life mission. For the other, it's important. It's a priority. But that person has not decided that this is a life mission. This is something that they're willing to die over. The relationship with Torah for these two people is very different. For one, it endures. It connects on a fundamentally different level. The themes that are our life mission, we relate to them with an entirely different lens, the Talmud tells us: "Listen to this. This is one of those Talmuds that you don't uh, always share. You don't always share. It's a hard thing to uh, to accept." The Talmud tells us that Torah dwells within someone who is. Dark like a raven. It's based upon a verse in Song of Songs. "Shchoros ke'orev, as black as a raven. Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 11. What does that mean? So the Talmud offers three opinions as to what it means that the Torah endures, a Torah flourishes within someone who's like a raven. So the first opinion says, Someone who gets up early in the morning and late at night, to go study in the academy, that's the kind of person who will have Torah flourish within them. And the Talmud explains that the Hebrew word for black is shachar, which is similar to the word of morning, shacharit or shachar. And the Hebrew word for, for a raven is an orev, which is similar to the word erev, which means evening. If you are morning and night studying, then Torah will flourish within you. First opinion. Second opinion is someone who blackens their face like a raven, meaning they deprive themselves and they suffer and they sacrifice for the sake of the Torah. Someone who fasts and is willing to forego other things with the intent of receiving Torah, that person will have Torah. And finally, this is the most controversial of the three, Someone who makes themselves cruel, like a raven. They're cruel to their children and to their household, like a raven. That's the person within whom Torah will flourish. And the commentaries explain that ravens, did you know this? Ravens neglect their young. They are cruel to their young. And who feeds The young ravens? God. God feeds the young ravens. So too, Torah only flourishes in someone who is cruel to their young, like a raven. Now, I'm fortunate that uh, my children are not old enough or interested enough to listen to the Parsha podcast. So I could say this over here freely without worrying about them listening to it. But certainly, this sounds very, very strange. What does it mean that Torah flourishes within someone who's like a raven if they get there in the morning and at night? They're dedicated, they're diligent. If it's referring to someone who is denying themselves other pleasures, blackening their face with hunger and privation for the sake of Torah, I get that as well. But cruelty to family sounds like a very difficult sell. I think the insight here is that it takes dedication and sacrifice for a cause to elevate into a life mission, into something you're willing to die for. When you're willing to die for something, when it's not just a priority, it ascends above other priorities when you're willing to sacrifice to give up things for it, when you're willing to forfeit for the cause, when you're even willing to say this is more important than family, that's something which is really your life mission. And just like the Almighty will feed the ravens, the... Talmud tells us that someone who commits themselves to one cause with such dedication and such absolute commitment, the Almighty will swoop in and aid them in their mission and take care of their children as well. When you commit to a cause, you're willing to die for it. It's a very powerful thing. Torah will endure within you. Your children will be provided to by God. And your life has direction. When you make it a priority, you're going to war for this cause. You're willing to die for it. You know what you're living for. You know what your life mission is. You know the hill that you are willing to die on. I'm not telling anyone to be cruel to anyone. And of course, we always have to understand the language in which our sages are speaking to us. But I think that the prime takeaway of this idea is that it's possible and it's even encouraged for someone to find something Find a cause. Find a war that you're willing to fight. Find something you're willing to die for. Your life will never be the same. Your life will then be filled with direction and purpose like never before. Okay, let's get to this week's exquisite insight. I promise you something a little bit different. Here we go. This week, we began the month of Elul the month before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the month that culminates in the high holidays. In the Sephardic communities, they have already began to say the Selichot, the prayers of repentance and atonement. The Ashkenazic communities begin Selichot, the week before Rosh Hashanah. We have already begun saying Psalms 27, twice a day at the conclusion of The prayers and each morning after prayers, after chakras prayers, we hear the sounds of the chauffeur. We're getting into the mode of repentance. We're preparing for the high holidays. Every year we like to revisit this iconic Rambam where he talks about the chauffeur this is in the laws of repentance, he tells us that even though the blowing of the shofar each Rosh Hashanah, the reason why we do it, it's like the reason we do every mitzvah, it's a command of God. Nevertheless, there is symbolism in it. As if the shofar is an alarm clock waking us up, as if it's saying, wake up, those that are sleeping. Arouse, those who are in a slumber. Wake up. Examine your deeds. Repent. Refine your ways. Remember your creator. These are the people, humanity, that forget the truth and all the nonsense, all the futility of time and their whole year they live for nonsense for nothingness, for futility doesn't help them. Look at your soul. Examine your soul. Improve your ways. Let each person abandon their improper path and their improper thoughts. The shofar is not just a hallowed sound. It's supposed to get in a message to us. We're asleep. We don't snore during the day. We sleep at night and we snore then. But our soul is snoring. Our soul is asleep. What are we living for? We forgot our Creator. Our ways have gone astray. To wake up our soul, we have the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. But of course, there is a ubiquitous custom to not wait to Rosh Hashanah the entire month of Elul. Every morning, we hear a few short blasts of the shofar. And the Midrash tells us that the first Elul corresponded to the third time the motion went up to heaven via Mount Sinai to get the second set of tablets. And he was there for 40 days. And over the course of that month in the camp, they blew the shofar each day to remind the people to not fall into the same trap, to not make the same mistake that they made the first time that Moshe ascended the mountain when they made the golden calf. So every morning, we hear the shofar. And this morning, Tuesday morning, by Shachris, one of my friends, he's a real... Jack of all trades. He's also a doctor and also a shochet. He does the ritual slaughtering and also a moel. And he's just like gifted. He knows how to like change a flat tire and change your oil. I would imagine he blew the shofar after davening, after prayer with such skill. And the sounds of the shofar reverberated throughout the whole shul. I went over to him. I said, okay. Would you mind blowing the chauffeur one more time? And I took out my phone and I recorded it. I want to play it on the podcast. And he was gracious enough to agree. So here it is. The sound of the chauffeur to get us all ready for Rosh Hashanah. May we all have an excellent Elul in preparation for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. May we all be blessed with a wonderful, happy, healthy, sweet new year. May we all be recipients, worthy recipients of the Almighty's blessings. I thank you for listening. Have an incredible and stupendous rest of your week. And a sensational, terrific, uplifting and tranquil Shabbos upcoming, and please God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll gather together again next week for next week's edition of the Parsha Podcast. And as always, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.